4 and Romans 13. You're going to feel the pincer tonight a little bit. Pincer movement. I got to shrink into that shirt. You got me. It's uh, got to lose a couple of pounds. No, it's good. It's a good, you know, I'll hang it up and be my goal. It's my goal. Fit into this tie-dyed shirt. <laughs> what? Yeah. No more bakery. Broccoli's good for you. So is kale. Yes. Cabbage, too. Tomatoes, cherries, cupcakes. Um, before I wander off, Romans chapter 4. And Romans 13. Father, I thank you tonight for the wonderful privilege that we have that's never grown old all these years, gathering together with your people, with those who pursue righteousness. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing that the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ is present always, that he'll always be here with us, in us, among us in fellowship. And so we pray that the word will proceed forth like the crystal living river from the throne of God and the Lamb tonight, and that it may enter our hearts and grant us life. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight I want to speak on something I've been suggesting little by little, the dynamic state of love. And last night I didn't get all the way through Romans 4, so I'm going to go fairly rapidly through there, starting at verse 23. Last night we did go from 13 through 22, and I want to cap that off before we go to Romans chapter 13. My translation of 423, but the words, quote, it was accounted to him, referring back to Genesis 15, 6, were not written for him alone, but also for us who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The idea here is that God is pleased with and that God approves of a trustful, confident faithfulness in him, whether it is Abraham believing in the promise that all the nations would be blessed in his seed, Christ, or whether we believe, as we do now, in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. For Paul says, for us also, and that includes us also, Faithfulness will be accounted by God to be approved livingness. You should be fairly attuned to that theme. Remember last night, we have to keep repeating a theme because the truth is more like, hits more like a Velcro, or rather a Teflon coating in our soul, whereas untruth sticks like Velcro very quickly. So we have to pay attention and keep attending to and gazing upon the perfect law of liberty. For us also faithfulness will be accounted by God to be approved livingness. He, Jesus, was handed over for our offenses. And that is for our offenses in verse 25 is a very important phrase because it is not dealing with handed over to endure the penalty for our offenses as much as it's dealing with what Hebrews 9.26 says. He appeared once in the end of the ages to put away sin, to put away sin by the offering of himself, to put away sin, the God who calls non-existent things into existence calls the existent thing called sin into non-existence. And he does so 
through Christ's atoning work on the cross. He was handed over for our offenses. That is, again, to take them away. To do away with our complicity with sin as an enslaving power by doing away with sin itself. John 1.29, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In doing away with it as an enslaving power, he does away with all human complicity, collusion with sin. That's called forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. And resurrected, please note this, he was resurrected or raised up. So really we have a poetic idea here. He was delivered up for our offenses and resurrected or raised up because of our justification. Ours, that is, meaning the justification of all of humankind once in Adam. If you put an arrow from 425 to 518, you'll see what I mean. By the obedience of one, by the righteous act of one, the many, that is the all, receive the justification of life. Our justification, then, means the justification of all humankind for all time. The reason for that is he was justified for his faithful obedience unto death and brought to life. And in being brought to life, God brought life to all in his resurrection. So once again, that Jesus was handed over for our offenses. This is a line of thinking that I'm going to be developing line upon line, here a little, there a little, until it's clear. That Jesus was handed over, paradidomi, for our offenses does not mean that he was handed over to be punished for them. But that he was handed over in an event and to a process by which sin would be expiated meaning made not to be at all. In Jesus' death, the God who calls non-existent things into existence, Romans 4.17, turned that which was existent against humankind into non-existence. He put away sin meaning he made it not to be. And the God who raises the dead, the God who vivified the 90-year-old womb of Sarah, the God who vivified the sexual ability of Abraham when he was about 100 years old and had considered his body to be dead, and Abraham kept on having children until he was 175, Oh, the chagrin. But this same God raised Jesus from the dead. In Jesus' death, the God who calls non-existent things into existence turned that which was existent, called sin, against humankind into non-existence. And the God who raises the dead raised Jesus from the dead, who is both the righteous one Romans 1.17, Acts 22.8, Acts 22.14, 1 Peter 3.18, Habakkuk 2.4, 1 John 2.1 and 2, Isaiah 53. The God who raises the dead raised Jesus from the dead, who is both the righteous one and the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only but for the sins of the world. Our justification, that phrase, closing off Romans 4.25 and the left flank of Romans, our justification. 
means the justification of life, the justification that sets right people in the reign of death by giving them Christ's own life. Our justification means the rectification of life to all of humankind once in Adam. Once again, confer with Romans 5.18 and compare. CF, Romans 5.18, CP, compare 1 Corinthians 15.22. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Conclusion, therefore, for all of Romans 4. All of Romans 4, as well as all of the epistles so far, closing in from the left flank, Romans 1.1 to 4.25, closing in from the left flank, which we will resume tonight, 12.1 through 16.27. All of Romans, so far, amounts to an escalating momentum toward God's universal mercy. Romans 11.32. God's universal mercy is the message that demolishes group biases and brings about unity. Therefore, Christian universalism, properly understood as a defense of God's integrity, remember the conversation with Campbell, and properly understood as the true gospel of God about his son, Christian universalism brings about Christian unity. Unity that ultimately brings all of humankind into the embrace of the triune God so that the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they may be one, Father, as we are one, would be realized, speaking of all humankind, Please note once again that our justification occurred in Christ's death and resurrection. Our justification, call it rectification if you wish, is by the Christ event. God's approval of our livingness, then, is our, his approval of our participated faithfulness. A faithfulness that does not work apart from the love of God. Therefore, that phrase that keeps resounding, a faith that works by love. We could even say a faith that works within the sphere of the dynamic state of love. We're talking not about just, I believe, for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. We're talking here about a faith that works within the dynamic sphere of divine and human love, human authentic love. You can't just say divine love because Jesus loved as a human. So the dynamic state of love is divine love and authentic human love as a dynamic state in the Holy Spirit which in itself is the, the experience of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, which is love, as we will see, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So in the dynamic state of love, we are inheriting the kingdom of God. Under the flesh, which is an apocalyptic actor, an adverse apocalyptic actor, under the flesh, no one inherits the kingdom of God. No one can experience the kingdom of God while being ruled by the desire, the impulsive desire of the flesh. That's obvious in your experience, is it not? You can't be coveting dominance over your fellow believers. You can't be coveting supremacy over others. You can't be operative in arrogance and pride and have the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. So this faithfulness does not work apart from the love of God which evokes it and sustains it. This faithfulness working by love or I think better working within the dynamic of love. Galatians 5.6 comes radically into view. That is also the rule 
as it's called in Galatians 6.16, the rule in which the Israel of God walks or moves and has its being and in the walking receives practical mercy and peace. Galatians 6.16. So, we move to the right flank slowly. In Romans 4, on the left flank of Romans, as we view the epistle, the horizon of the epistle, head on. In Romans 4, on the left flank of Romans, the epistle, we've been seeing God-approved livingness called faith or faithfulness. We've seen its kinship with Hebrews 11. By it, the presbyteroi, the elders of previous times, received a good report. They didn't receive justification by their faith. They received a good report, meaning divine approval for their faithfulness. I've suggested several times that this livingness that God approves is part of the dynamic state of love. I'm happy to say that because by faith I called this year another year of being in love. At the beginning of this year. I've suggested that this livingness is part of a dynamic state of love, especially by bringing Galatians 5, 6 into the picture, which says, in Christ Jesus. That's in fellowship with him. God is faithful who called us into fellowship with his son. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision are anything. They amount to nothing at all. So if anybody thinks he's something because he's circumcised when he's really nothing because he's circumcised, he deceives himself. Or if someone is uncircumcised and proud of it and thinks himself to be something because he's uncircumcised and God has rejected the Jews, the circumcised, then he's really nothing. And he deceives himself. Circumcision is nothing as a state nor is uncircumcision as a condition. But what's really something is a faith that works by love, a faithfulness that works by love. And so faith, by definition, is a livingness that works within a dynamic state of love. Otherwise, it doesn't work. James was very careful to say, Arguing, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And he was talking about justification. What he really proved is that you're not justified by faith or by works, but that God approves of a faith that works under the royal law of love. That summed up the very difficult argument of James, but of course I'd have to put a lot of flesh on those bones. Maybe someday. Faith is a livingness that works within a dynamic state of love. It is in Christ Jesus because it is participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God. A faithfulness that works within a dynamic state of divine and human love. Jesus is divine. Jesus is human. His love is therefore divine and human. The love of Christ that controls us is a divine and a human love. We're incapable of it because it's divine. But we are doers of it because it's human in the power of the Spirit. It's a faith that works by love because it's the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us. And gave himself for us. We don't frustrate the grace of God. And so, it's a faithfulness that works within a dynamic state of divine and human love. This is what I might call, or what the Bible seems to call, the guiding rule by which the people of God are to walk. During this clashing juncture of the aeons. This is the summary guiding principle of the Israel of God. The Israel of God in turn is the prolepsis, the harbinger of a universally redeemed humanity. 
So if we follow our pincer strategy, which we've been doing from the beginning, we'll find that on the right flank, love is actually explicitly revealed in connection with the faith of Romans 4. Faith is shown to be explicitly revealed to be the operative within the state of dynamic love. Once again, if we follow our pincer strategy of interpretation of Romans, we find that on the right flank, namely Romans 13, really Romans 12 and 13, love is explicitly revealed or disclosed to be the state in which faith works. Romans 12.1 through 13.7 presents a decidedly non-retaliatory policy against evil. You say you want a revolution? Not if you're going around carrying pictures of Chairman Mao. That's a Beatles song reference. I don't expect you to have the spirituality to attain such a thing. But the Romans 12, 1 to 13, 7 presents a policy of non-retaliation against evil, including retaliation or violent rebellion against the institutional evil that at the time was Rome, the Roman Empire. Jesus did the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you are carrying your wagon, your wagon full of fruit, and a Roman soldier comes and said, we need that wagon, we commandeer that wagon, go with us a mile, go two miles with them. Jesus is advocating non-retaliation. If a Roman occupier slaps you in the face, offer the other cheek. Don't pull out a dagger and stab him like Peter did with Malchus. This policy then is in perfect accord with Jesus' teaching of non-retaliation against the occupying power of the Roman Empire in keeping with his saving will. Because we've learned all the way through Revelation, he is not the vengeful heavenly general that many expected in Israel of their coming Messiah. Rather, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of Rome, the sin of Israel, the sin of Jerusalem, the sin of Las Vegas, the sin of New York, the sin of all mankind in all of their times. Romans 13.8 then begins with the passage with which we want to be immediately concerned. In it, we learn several things. I'm laying out what we're going to learn before we learn it. First, we learned that love is the summary mandate. It's the mandate that sums up, in other words, all of the law. Second, we learn that love does no ill to its neighbor. Third, we learn that love is embodied and humanized in our Lord Jesus Christ. We could say incarnated in him. Fourth, we learn that we are to live our lives in a dynamic mimesis of him. That's not just imitation, but it's a manifestation of Jesus in our mortal bodies. By recognizing what's real, what's true. What's true is that our life and our continued livingness depends utterly on God. Faith is simply the recognition of that. Angels have their life from God. Only God has life in himself, and that includes the Son. The Son has life in himself, unoriginated life. All creatures, angels and men, animal and vegetation, depend on God as the giver of life. Faith simply recognizes that our life in its inception and continuation is up to God to maintain and we're assured that he will unto eternity. Fourth, then, we learn that we are to live our lives in a dynamic mimesis of him, as Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 also says, by clothing ourselves with him, using that metaphor of clothing 
which goes back to their understanding of water baptism in which they removed one set of clothes and were given a new set of clothes after rising from the water. We are to live our lives in a dynamic mimesis of Jesus Christ by clothing ourselves with him. And fifth, this is the only way that no provision is made for the flesh. And by flesh, I'm speaking here, not of your lower nature. That's not how Paul uses it here. Flesh with a capital F is an adverse apocalyptic power which exerts an impulsive desire that no human being is equal to. The flesh is weak. The flesh, the human, human flesh with a small f is weak, so it can't resist the impulsive desire of the flesh. There's only one resistor. It's God the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit desires and inclines against the flesh, and the flesh, that apocalyptic actor, that superhuman actor, acts against the Spirit. Only the Spirit of Jesus Christ is the victor over that flesh. So this is the only way that no provision is made for the flesh, Romans 13, 14, as we'll see. And the flesh, by definition, is an adverse apocalyptic power. Another word for adverse is, I read it a lot in my theological studies, inimical, which means adverse. It's a word that kind of makes an adjective out of the word enemy. So the flesh is an inimical, inimical, adverse adversary or adverse power whose desires clash with the benevolent will of God. Therefore, there is a deep affinity between putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14, and walking by the Spirit, in Galatians 5, 16, and 17, the Spirit alone who effectively thwarts the desires of the flesh. Now, this brings up the notion that we need to understand in all of Paul's writings because the main question I've asked at the beginning of studying Paul in Better Call Paul, do Paul's epistles constitute an apocalypse similar, than, similar to the book of Revelation? We ask two real basic questions. The first question we asked at the outset of Revelation, is God's justice retributive and punitive, or is it restorative and transformative? And we answered that question overwhelmingly with the latter. It is transformative and restorative. If God's justice is not retributive and punitive, then why do we speak of Jesus being punished on the cross? He didn't die for our sins as the one receiving the penalty, but as the one who took away those sins and made them not to be. This again will be explained little by little, line upon line not in one night. Paul is an apocalyptic theologian then. And regarding that, I want you to consider what Louis J. Martin wrote about him in his phenomenal book called Galatians, his commentary from 1997. Listen carefully to this statement on page 570. He says, It is true that Paul does not use images that are obviously apocalyptic falling stars, a blood-red moon, an earthquake, etc. But his language is thoroughly cosmic and as fully apocalyptic as it would have been had he done so. Jesus is an apocalyptic theologian. He used those words like a moon turning to blood, the sun turning as black as sackcloth, stars falling from the sky, earthquake, Paul didn't, but he might as well have because his language is so cosmic, universal, and apocalyptic that he might as well have done so. That's the point. So features of apocalyptic are, the, are really three. Three features I want to bring into closer focus. Drop another lens tonight. Three features of apocalyptic or of apocalypse, what it means. One, supranatural powers at odds. 
and I may be stealing this directly from, maybe looting Lewis Martin again, I'm not sure. Supra-natural, or we could say superhuman powers at odds. Secondly, Apocalypse indicates a dramatic change of universal conditions. A dramatic change of universal conditions. You look at Galatians 1.4, you get an idea of that. Jesus Christ died for our sins to save us or deliver us from this present evil age. This present evil age is about to be overtaken utterly by the messianic age. Third thing that we want to be focused in on, feature of apocalyptic, is a change of eons. A-E-O-N-S. Or if you want to spell it simply E-O-N-S. Or if you want to call it ages. A change of eons. All of this then is encapsulated in the gospel, especially what may be called Paul's gospel, that which he called my gospel. Romans 2.16, in which he, for example, says that the last judgment, which I may bring up on Sunday morning, is something that God does through Jesus Christ our Lord. The one who is crucified for us is our judge. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ then is replayed universally at the last judgment. And therefore, it is a philanthropic action of God, a very humane action of salvation for the whole of the human race at the last judgment. The last judgment ought to be the thing that you're looking forward to the most on the vista of the horizon of your thinking. The last judgment. You can hold your head high at that prospect. God will set everything right. So the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham, as we've seen, and a promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, which is Christ. But it's to his seed, which is Christ, in whom all things are going to be recapitulated. The gospel preached to Abraham was a promise of blessing to all the nations. The gospel of Christ, the singular seed, as Paul says in Galatians 3.16, in its very essence is universal. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. It portrays a vision of universally, a universally saving Savior God. Titus 2.11, Titus 2.13 comes into play. It paints a picture of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, elevated and enthroned as the victor over sin. Introducing another note in the symphony. Christus Victor. Christ the Victor. You'll hear me mention that quite a few times. And so, it portrays Jesus Christ as elevated and enthroned as the victor over sin and death and over the cursing, enslaving law. Not that the law itself enslaves, but when it's co-opted by sin, it becomes an enslaver. And this gospel shows the spirit of Christ to be the ongoing victor over its opposite, the flesh. Again, not the lower part of the human nature, but an inimical or adverse suprahuman actor in the presently ongoing apocalyptic war. And it is an apocalyptic war. Otherwise, you wouldn't be told to arm yourselves with spiritual armor. Spiritual armor. The gospel discloses, therefore, God's integrity or righteousness through Christ's fidelity. The gospel is a window into God's integrity through Christ's fidelity. Here we're dealing once again with variations on the theme of Proverbs 29.18, where there is no vision, God's people are perishing. God's people are perishing without this vision, without this perspective, without this universal horizon. And perishing refers to the flesh gone wild, the flesh 
with a capital F, in control. The flesh gone wild. And the Adamic ontology being the ground and the root of the fourth level of intentional human consciousness. And I said that on purpose, not because I want to sound smart, but because the dynamic state of love happens somewhere in you. So perishing refers to the flesh gone wild and its detrimental effects. It refers to a condition of Adamic ontology that is unrestrained and which cannot inherit the kingdom of God because it has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The people, my people, is plural in Proverbs 29.18. And similarly, Galatians 5.19-21 describes a community, not an individual or individuals, but a community enslaved by the flesh in which there are factions and parties, and parties I mean factions, each vying for some kind of dominance, each rooted in some kind of bias, each connected with some kind of what the Bible calls huper iphenos, the desire to show oneself above others. The one who didn't desire that at all is exalted above all. The people then, plural. Galatians 5.19 to 21 describes a community enslaved by the flesh a cosmic and supernatural actor. It's a slavery that ultimately produces a harvest of misery. Sowing to the flesh, we reap a harvest of corruption. That's perishing. It only happens in time. It ends with the death of the human body. And so, hell, as we've learned, I'm going to teach very shortly that hell is a doctrine of demons. Hell is a doctrine of demons. The doctrine of a torturing God, torturing people in the post-mortem state, is a doctrine that is born of a demon thinking. And I'll prove that. From the scriptures and also from using some experiences, I've read a recent book by, recommended by Patrick Barton from our Knoxville, Tennessee group. I got through it today finally. It's, it's a difficult read because it's graphic it's violent, but it has a shaman, uh, what we call a witch doctor, who is filled with all kinds of what he called spirits, who has an apocalyptic vision of someone he calls Yai Pada, the creator and the spirit man who came into this world and lived among mankind and suffered to save mankind. Jesus Christ, in other words. He had a vision that sounds like Paul's vision on the road to Damascus, at which time all those other spirits left him, and he joined a community of believers in among the Yamamamo tribe in Venezuela in the rainforest, a Christian group. And more than one of them had a Damascus road experience, more than one of the shamans of the village. And this man tells his story verified three times over. It's called The Spirit of the Rainforest. If you're tough, I recommend it because it ends up yielding to a wonderful display of Jesus Christ, objectively told, something that happened beginning in 1950 up to 1990-something. But I said all that to say that this shaman, in telling his story, said that those demon spirits that hated this creator spirit and fled when they finally saw, when he saw that vision. They were the ones that told him about a fiery pit after death. And that was the doctrine of demons. And they believed in this. A fiery pit after death from which you can never be saved. It's called the hell doctrine. And so, I'll show from the scriptures why that is a doctrine of demons. And think of it. I just can't imagine it. Much of the horror we see today happening in institutional religion is because of doctrines of demons and because Jesus Christ has been sidelined to be a relatively insignificant religious figure rather than our life.
In contrast, Galatians 5:22 to 23 describes a community in which Christ is actually being formed. Christ be formed in you, Paul said in Galatians 4:19. And where Christ is being formed, there is love. As Galatians 5:14 says, for the whole of the law The entirety of the law, the totality of the law has been brought to completion in one sentence. You will love your neighbor as yourself. The whole of the law has been brought to completion, it says, because it's referring to that which happened in and by the Lord Jesus Christ by his obedience to God's saving will to the extent of laying his life down for the ungodly. Therefore, to clothe ourselves with him, a very colorful metaphor coming up in 1314 means to envelop ourselves in the dynamic state of divine and authentic human love. The dynamic state of love can never be detached from God's gift of his love to us. Therefore, Romans 5.5 becomes a radically significant key verse for all of Romans, for all the word of God for that matter. Because the dynamic state of love can never be detached from God's gift of his love to us. And this love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, given to us once and for all, to always be with us. If the Spirit could say something to you tonight, the Spirit of Jesus, you know what he'd say? He'd say, I'll always be here meaning with you, in you, available to empower you to love. I'll always be here. So, Bernard, Bernard Lonergan, I had an uncle, Bernard, we called him Bernard, not Bernard. He was my grandfather's younger brother. He had a steel plate in his head because he was blown apart in the Pacific Theater in World War II. He had a glass eye. He was a very gracious man. We always knew him as Bernard. And then I learned that Bernard is supposed to be Bernard. But Bernard Lonergan speaks of the gift of God's love as that which, notice this, quote, occupies the ground and root of the fourth and highest level of man's intentional consciousness. Now, that's fancy talk, but if you read his book called Method and Theology, you read about that. Again, the gift of God's love occupies ground in us. But the ground that it occupies is the root of the fourth and highest level of man's intentional consciousness. And he added this, quote, it takes over the peak of the soul, the apex anime, as he uses the Latin phrase, apex anime. And so I'm applying that to Romans 13, 14 again, where we're going, and we may not get there tonight. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the metaphor, he takes over the peak of our soul. And we see through his eyes from that mountain peak. We see from his perspective a horizon in which all of fallen humankind and all of the ill-affected creation is the object of his unconditional, unrestricted, uncontingent love and grace. The love of Christ then controls us. Why? Because it takes over the apex anime the peak of our soul. The love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have thus determined, Paul said, that if one died for all, then all died. You see, he sees that perspective now. So the love of Christ controls him. The love of Christ can control. There's a fourth level of human intentionality, whether you have an IQ of 70 or 170. It doesn't matter. That's not the key. IQ is not the key. 
The key is the Holy Spirit. Someone who loves with an IQ of 70 is far more brilliant to God than someone with an IQ of 170 who's very self-oriented, self-egocentric, having a disease that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. So we're ready for Romans 13.8. Do not owe anything, anyone, anything. Do not owe anyone anything. That means have no outstanding debts. I think that's even in the notes of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Don't have any outstanding debts except this one, to love one another. See, the dynamic state of love has now become explicit on the right flank of Romans. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves, it says, the other, ton heteron, the one who loves the other, that is someone totally other than themselves. Like Jesus said in Matthew five forty three and following, don't just greet friendly greetings to those that are in your own little clique, your own little family, your own little gathering, your own little coffee clatch in the morning, but greet people outside of that sphere, the other, someone that's other. God's love is unique because it loves the other, even the enemy, the other. For Christ died for us while we were what? Enemies. What did he do to die when he died? He destroyed the enmity, not the enemies. He transforms his enemies. He reconciles them, turns them into friends. He says, for the one who loves the other, ton heteron, has fulfilled the law, meaning they have filled it full. Loving the other is the message and the mandate for all the saints in Rome and for all the saints in New Kensington. For us. Jesus loved the other. Jesus, the righteous one, loved the unrighteous others. He, the righteous one, loved the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? The, the totally others than himself. Everything today that involves enmity involves me and the others. We and they in an inimical way, in an adversarial way. And that's what was going on among the Christians in Rome. Jesus, the righteous one, loved the unrighteous others and laid his life down for them. And that's all of us. All of us. The love of God is God's love for the other. It's been styled or called enemy love. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, is clothing yourself with the one who loves the other. This makes no provision for the flesh, as you'll see in 14 again, Romans 13, 14. With its loss, it makes no room for the inimical, adversarial, apocalyptic actor called the flesh. It makes no provision for the flesh with its impulsive desires, mainly for showing oneself to be superior to others. That's the main lust that's being dealt with here. makes no provision for the flesh when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ because the flesh has desires for supremacy, for vengeance, for triumphing over the other. Jesus triumphed over that which segregates one from the other. He triumphed over sin as Christus Victor. He took away sin as Christus Medicus. He took away the malady, the incurable wound, which would have destroyed us. Christus Medicus, the great physician. He triumphed over sin. He put off the body of the flesh, says Colossians 2.11. The real circumcision was Jesus Christ putting off this flesh altogether, putting him off, putting off that supernatural actor, defeating him. 
and his control over the human body. And he ended the reign of death. He is Christus Victor. C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S and then Victor. Romans 13.9, listen to this. This, this is going to blow up. This is going to not only fan out, but explode. Four, the word gar, again, as I've said, used 144 times. It's inferential, meaning it says, because it says this, then I'm going to infer this. If it's used 144 times in Romans, then you can be sure that Paul is building a single narrative case of the gospel. Four, he writes again, four, gar, for this. And then we would have in the English, it would be a colon. Do not commit adultery. He starts listing commandments of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, he says. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this word. Ento logo tuto. In this logos. Love your neighbor as yourself. Summed up in this. Guess what the word summed up is? And it's only used twice in the entire Bible. And it's used in Romans and it's used in Ephesians. So that people who say that Paul didn't write Ephesians ought to at least wake up to the fact that this word is used only twice in the Bible and both in what we call Paul's epistles. It's called anakephaliao, the recapitulation. And if we use a kind of gezerah shava here, then we connect Romans 13.9. What I'm doing as a pastor is walking on two legs. The first leg is the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, whereby God anakephaliao, sums up all beings and all things in Christ. But I'm also doing this anakephaliao, which is the sum total of all that the law requires and all that God requires for approved living. This is to love your neighbor, the other, as yourself. So summed up is the present active or rather, make that passive. It's the present passive participial form of the verb anakephaleao. Much more attention will come up about on this word. The only other time it's used in the Bible is Ephesians 1.10, where Paul speaks of the mystery of God's intention and his unstoppable determination to sum up all things and all beings in Christ. According to the very important Lou Nida, L-O-U-W-N-I-D-A, two people, Lou Nida lexicon, it means, quote, to bring everything together in terms of some unifying principle or person. The person is Jesus. According to Joseph Thayer's lexicon, in the context of Ephesians 1.10, it means, quote, to bring together again for himself because of the middle voice, all things and beings hitherto disunited by sin into one combined state of fellowship in Christ, the universal bond. Joseph Thayer. Excellent lexicon. So Lunita and Joseph Thayer. By a kind of Gezerah Shava, in which word is, a word is compared with, another, with the same word elsewhere, Romans 13.9 reveals the kind of livingness that God empowers and approves in the light of this universal saving or salutary Christological event. In the light of this event, how do we live? We live in love, in a dynamic state of divine love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit realized humanly in an authentic way through the Holy Spirit. So again, by a kind of Gezerah Shava of this, Romans 13.9 reveals the kind of livingness that God empowers and approves in the light of this universal saving Christological event that we look forward to, the universal summation of all things. So this word, love your neighbor as yourself, is incarnate in Jesus, who is the Logos. It says this word, Logos, 
And so love your neighbor as yourself, this word is incarnate in Jesus, the Logos, who is God and who became flesh, divine and human. Therefore, this love, this dynamic state of love, is both a divine and a human state. This Jesus, the Logos, is God. He became flesh to become sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. He is love. And a text I received a couple days ago from Lou Ross, our friend, he said this is something that that C.S. Lewis wrote. Quote, love himself can work in those who know nothing of him. And that's so true. Love himself can work in those who know nothing of him. Because he is love. The importance of the linkage of Anna Kephalaio in these verses cannot be overstated. For Anna Kephalaio in Ephesians 1.10 reveals the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, one leg of our present insight for several years. And in Romans 13.9, Anna Kephalaio reveals the essence of God-approved livingness in anticipation of that eschatological universal event when all things and all beings in all of their times will be redemptively united in Christ and set right. Even perpetrators receive righteousness as victims receive justice in this transformative justice of God, the principle of which is his love. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to its neighbor. That's the negative side. Therefore, love is the filling up or the totality of the law. Someone sees something and they want it. They take it. They have no conscience about it. But what if the love of God is being poured out in your heart? You see something and you love your neighbor. And you do no harm to your neighbor, so you refuse to steal that which your neighbor has. You refuse to commit adultery because it's a sin against your neighbor. You do no harm to your neighbor. And that's the, we could say, the negative, positive side of love. Love does no ill, does no harm. That's why Paul said that we should be harmless children in a crooked and perverse generation. Be harmless, not willing for anyone's harm. Love does no harm to its neighbor. And love fulfills the entire requirement of the law. But the requirement of the law, or the rectitude that the law requires of man and men and women, is fulfilled in us when we walk in the Spirit, who effectively pours out the love of God in our hearts. Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 8.4, compared with Galatians 5.14, 16 and 22. God is love. His love is humanized and incarnated in Jesus. Jesus does no harm to his neighbor. Acts chapter 10 says he went about doing good. He healed he forgave. He assured people of his father's love. He laid his life down. What did Jesus ever do to harm his neighbor? Nothing. Jesus does no harm to his neighbor. He died for the other. It is altogether unreasonable that he would do harm to anyone in the final judgment, therefore. The one who laid his life down for his enemies, what's he going to do in the judgment? Is he going to torture? And that's what the demon said to Jesus. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? And what did Jesus say? Shut up. That's not even a reality. That, you're talking about a non-existent evil. That's not what God is going to do. He's not coming to torture the demons. 
So he tells them, because it's a doctrine of demons. It's an expectation and an idea that God is going to come to torture people that didn't believe in him or didn't behave. And whatever the sin is that shocks the fundy, God's going to pound the hell out of somebody or put them in hell and torture them forever and ever and ever because he makes Hitler look like a nice kid. That's what God, you want to have God as a monster? A doctrine of demons turns God into a monster. The gospel shows God to be just like Jesus. So in closing, we won't get to 13.11, but I will read it very quickly because this is the light that has to be on when we read Romans. Put on the armor of light. So Jesus, it's altogether unreasonable that Jesus would do harm to anyone in the final judgment. That's why Jesus silenced the demons in Rome in Matthew 8:29 when they said to him, "Have you come to torture us before the time? There's a time coming when you're going to come and torture us. Are you going to do that now instead of waiting till then?" Implying that the final judgment would be a time when God in Christ would torture them and damn many of his creatures. There's no such thing as a God-damning Judgment. I'm not swearing. I said God approved. I can say God damning. There's no such thing as a judgment in which God damns. So you can say God damn it all day long. You're not making any sense. It doesn't make sense. That's two shocks. One last night because I talked about sex. One tonight because I swore. The doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell in which God in Christ will torture and damn many of his creatures. That doctrine of the torture of departed souls and fallen angels is a doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 Many will give themselves over to follow doctrines of demons. So is the very idea of a damning final judgment. And you know what else is stupid in my view? Purgatory or anything in which people have to be for many ages straightened out. And that's what a lot of even the church father, that's not just a Catholic thing, that's what church fathers believe. They said, well, in the long ages to come, and many of the universalists of our time teach this, and I divorce myself from that doctrine. God, there's really bad actors in history, so God's going to ex- have many ages in which he's going to reform them. They're, going to, they're not going to hell, but they're going to a reform school to be purified. Why? See, the cross is good to them, but not that good. To me, it's so good. It's almost too good for people to believe. In closing, therefore, let's quickly look on this. Look at this translation I have for Romans 13. And this, knowing the time, speaking of the time, do you know what time it is? Someone says, yes, it's five after eight. You should be done. (laughs) Get behind me, you accuser of the brethren. I'm only kidding. I know the Steelers are playing. It's just an exhibition game, though. And you taped it. And this, knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. For now, our salvation, that's our final salvation. He's talking about our final deliverance. is closer than when we first believed. Now the night is almost over. That's the age, the evil age. The day is at hand. It's about to break forth. So put off the works of darkness, just like you put off your night clothes when you wake up. And put on the armor of light. Unfortunately, we live in a time when people still wear their pajamas. In the winter, you go to get-go to get a coffee, and somebody's there with pajamas and moon boots with salt stains on the bottom of their pajamas. They didn't wake up and put off their night clothes. And put on clothes that are appropriate for human interaction. 
And so what Paul's saying here is, look, hey, look. Put off your night clothes when you get up. And when you go out in the day, let us walk, let us put on the armor of light. Reading Romans with the light on is another nuance here. Read Romans with this light on, the armor of light on. Let us walk in a way that is appropriate for daytime. Not flannel pajamas with moon rockets on them that are stained on the bottom from salt stains in the winter with moon boots in which we have to stand behind you in line to get our coffee. (laughs) Boy, is that stupid. What an analogy. Anyways, I'm closing. There's about ten people here saying, that's how I dress. (laughs) Some are saying, that's probably how you dress too, Nap. But not with excessive partying and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery. Not in quarrels and party strife. Factionalism rooted in group bias. That's the last one he mentions because that's the one he's after more than ever. It's not the parties. It's the parties. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H. That is, for its desires. The desires of the flesh here refer specifically to the expressions of the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is the power of sin under the reign of death that makes you want to be superior to others. So to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on love. Authentic, divine, and human love. Colossians 3.14, 1 John 3.16. It is to love one another and to love the other as Jesus loved. This is an impossible achievement apart from the spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19 and 20 who resides within us always. To be in Christ Jesus is to be in love. Amen. Thank you, Father. And we thank you that we are, as Abraham said to the Pharisees, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. We're the stones. We're built up into a holy temple as living stones now, children of Abraham. We have the privilege of offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do that now. And if there's one that wants to do it or none that wants to do it, it doesn't matter. We're just presenting the opportunity to present a sacrifice made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Use this, Father, to build a habitat for humanity to enter into through Jesus Christ, through grace, through the power of this word to awaken faith. Use this sacrifice that we make to you tonight, which you'll give back to us, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. Use it to bring forth this gospel so that it may evoke faith in the listeners and promote hope And let hope not be ashamed as the love of God is shed abroad in the hearts. We ask these things, nothing short of it, with absolute confidence in Jesus' name, amen.